everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Religion Prof Podcast. Uh, I'm delighted to have as my guest today, uh, Karen Keene. Uh, Dr. Karen Keene is a, a scholar who works on in biblical studies, uh, but has recently uh, written a book that I think has a much more personal connection for her. And it's a book that I read and enjoyed and felt offers something really valuable, not just to people who are interested in the study of scripture, but to Christians, to churches, trying to think about the intersection of scripture and ethics, scripture and application. Um, it's a book that I think, while it focuses in on one particular example, one particular issue that is uh, much debated and making the news a lot in our time, it really has a broad applicability to um, Christian ethics in general, but even just biblical application. And so uh, was eager you know, to uh, invite Karen on the show to talk about her new book, which I um, have to make sure I give you the title, um, and I'll mention it towards the end and as often as I can to make sure that people uh, take this podcast as a what it is, which is a recommendation that they go and uh, buy and read this book or get in their public library. Uh, it's called Scripture, Ethics, and the Possibility of Same-Sex Relationships uh, by Karen R. Keene. So, Karen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for uh, joining me on the, the podcast today. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me, James. So, uh, thoroughly enjoyed your book and uh, really found it engaging. And as I'm sure you know as well, there are books that we find engaging sort of personally, but maybe not so much intellectually. There are ones that we find intellectually interesting, but are wondering what's the practical relevance. And yours is really sort of engaging in all those levels, which mm. uh, is not something that I um, always encounter. Uh, it's, not, it's not the only book, I should say, lest anyone think that uh, every other book I've talked about on here or uh, recommended on my blog uh, haven't really enjoyed. Uh, but yours is certainly up there in that category. Uh, so first of all, I want to say thank you for writing it. Uh, but want to talk a little bit about uh, sort of the content of the book, give you a chance to to highlight uh, some of your own story and how it connects with the book mm -hmm. uh, wh and what you want readers to take away from it. And I, I think it's probably generally true that um, many of us who work in fields like biblical studies, academic study of religion, don't always write about the Bible or whatever our um, subject area is in a way that exposes its, uh, its relevance to us or tells our own story. And so, uh, what is it like as a biblical scholar, as a you know, as an academic, to write a book that's deeply personal? Yeah, great question. So, you know, I've always wanted to be a writer. I've always loved studying, and I never imagined when I was young that I would grow up to write a book on sexuality. I don't know if that's a topic that people normally aspire to when they're young to write about, but. Uh, I also didn't expect that I would end up gay. And uh, so I was forced in some ways to address this topic because of my own life, having grown up in a conservative Baptist context uh, where I was taught that gay people are outside the church, that gay people are, you know, pedophiles and drug addicts and these awful caricatures. And that wasn't me. I was a, a very devout Christian. I loved God with all my heart. I was going to Bible college because I wanted to spend my life in ministry. 
And obviously what the church had told me was not completely accurate. I didn't fit those caricatures. And so I was trying to make sense of this. It was very confusing. It was traumatic. It was um, very disruptive to my faith uh, because what I had been taught was not what was actually happening. And so I had to make sense of how, how did this occur in me as a, as a devout Christian? Um, what does this mean for scripture? And initially, and for much of my life, I was a traditionalist. I, I thought, you know, okay, I'm reading scripture and it says that same-sex relations are wrong. And so I'm going to try to say, change my sexual orientation. Uh, when that didn't work, um, I'm going to join the, you know, the gay celibate movement and live my life in celibacy. And so despite this um, unexpected reality in my life, I really wanted to serve God and was trying to serve God the best that I could. And in the process, of course, I'm continually studying the scriptures and I went on to seminary, I went on to um, postgraduate work, and the shift in my views came from studying scripture and uh, not from anything else. Um, it came from scripture and as someone who still appreciates the love of the Bible that my Baptist heritage gave me, um, any conclusions that I made about faith and practice I wanted to have grounded in scripture. Yeah, thank you um, for sharing that. I I feel like, you know, as you were talking about caricatures, right, and, you know, finding oneself, you know, not fitting these caricatures, uh, one of the things that you do in the text is offer some examples, uh, both scriptural, but also uh, some contemporary examples of uh, the application of the Bible using a, a sort of a, a discerning hermeneutic that recognizes where something that may or may not have been true in the past, but is there, and that was the way things were done in the past, uh, maybe needs to be done differently in light of some new evidence. And as you were talking, I was thinking about one of the examples, you know, that we had uh, exchanged messages about, you know, which is thing about how Paul viewed uh, Gentiles and, you know, the imposition on them or not imposition of them, on them of uh, circumcision as a requirement. But certainly there were a lot of caricatures of Gentiles in Paul's time, um, mm. certainly in a Jewish context. Mm -hmm. um, and lest anyone think I'm saying that's something unique to any particular group. I mean, every group has caricatures of others that uh, need to be challenged. But I imagine Gentiles could have easily said to Paul uh, or to somebody else, let's say the author of Wisdom of Solomon or something like that. Yeah. Um, I, I don't fit your stereotype. Uh, what you're describing there, I, I don't see myself in that description. Um, and you, of course, talked about uh, having a similar kind of experience in terms of the, the caricatures and stereotypes mm. uh, of gay people in your context. Mm -hmm. uh, the harder thing, of course, is for someone who is not in that category and so doesn't see themselves as not fitting the stereotype to recognize that this other person doesn't fit the stereotype that they're bringing and they're imposing on them. And so uh, clearly one of the things that I think probably happened in Paul's case, as in the case of many people today, is encountering other people who don't fit stereotypes and making, you know, uh, forcing a, a reexamination. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of people today, particularly conservatives, struggle with the idea that it's appropriate 
to to meet people or to go through an experience of suffering or to uh, have any kind of experiential evidence and then take that back to the Bible and ask, okay, in light of that, should I change the way I understand this? Should I read it differently? Should I apply it differently? Uh, what have you found to be some of the, the more effective ways of helping people to use the Bible in a discerning manner, to recognize that we don't read in a vacuum, right? Whether we're bringing stereotypes and presuppositions about others that are negative or whether we're bringing personal experience that is of positive encounters with others, we're bringing things with us and those shape us. But I don't know about you, but certainly that's, a, that's, a, that's something that we often don't, uh, don't cope as well with or, or even taught to resist when we're in a conservative religious context, which is a church context I gather we've both uh, experienced at some point in our own, um, our own spiritual journeys. Yes, absolutely. I think our social location, where we grow up geographically, our um, race, ethnicity, our gender, all of those things shape how we view the world and affect uh, the way that what we see in scripture. Um, at the same time, um, you know, th those who come from a traditional standpoint and from backgrounds like I do tend to feel a little bit concerned about the idea of experience shaping the way that we read scripture because our experience can be unreliable and we want scripture to speak to us and to speak into our lives. And so personally, I, I think that scripture itself teaches how much experience plays a role in the way that we hear God and actually want to write a book on that at some point. But starting from where many traditionalists are or uh, who hold to um, some reticence about using experience, um, I want to be sensitive to that. So in my book, I'm looking for um, where does, where does um, scripture teach us how to interpret scripture. Um, and so um, I'm fundamentally looking at, we need to pay more attention to scripture and how the biblical authors themselves and how Jesus teaches how to do hermeneutics. Yeah. Oh, um, well, first of all, before, before I forget, I want to say, please write that book because that sounds like it'd be uh, something so, uh, so very necessary and so useful. Uh, yeah, uh, in our earlier communication, I mentioned the fact that, you know, there's a sort of a go-to example. I think one, when it's experience in general, I tend to point people to the um, book of Job, where Job, it's like, yeah, I used to think that this equation about, you know, sort of how God works in the world and goodness is rewarded and evil is punished works, but now I have some evidence that suggests otherwise. Uh, but in terms of really taking scripture, right, because Job doesn't seem to be interacting with scripture as a you know, character in that book, uh, I tend to look at the, the early church having a clear commandment in the book of Genesis, right? Abraham is told that anyone who joins your family, even if they're not your actual biological offspring, as we would put it today, uh, needs to be circumcised in order to be part of your household. Otherwise, they're cut off from the covenant. Mm -hmm. And the early church says, 
yeah, we discern that God is doing something different in our time. Mm. And so there's this great example of, you know, not just some characters in the Bible, but you know, the early church discerning that this thing from scripture is not going to be applied in the way that a fairly sort of plain reading or what seemed like that to um, most people in that time, they're not going to apply it in that way. Mm-hmm. But the catch 22, of course, is that the people, you know, those, that whole argument, the people who are uh, formulating that argument, all that becomes part of the new Testament, which then becomes scripture for Christians, which I think sometimes undermines a willingness to say we need to do what they did because they were different. They were inspired. They were in a special category. Mm -hmm. And so I appreciated that in your book, you also looked at, you know, the Presbyterian church of America's discernment process regarding divorce and remarriage. You looked at contemporary examples as well, but how do we get people to say, here's a scriptural model and yet not have them bracket out and say, yeah, but those people were different. Um, because a, a Presbyterian argument, if you're, let's say you're in a Baptist context, doesn't carry quite as much weight. Right? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So fundamentally, we're talking about law and, and prescriptions in scripture and a hermeneutical approach that um, says we need to pay attention to these mandates because this is God's word. And so, um, so I start from there based on that I know that many of my readers are in that prescriptive camp of hermeneutics. And um, I'm looking at, okay, so if there is a mandate in scripture, if there even a creation ordinance that transcends culture, how do we interpret those? And, and so I'm, my suggestion is we look to scripture for uh, examples that teach us how to do that. So the biblical authors and Jesus. And of course, then as you raise the point, some people might be concerned, okay, well, if the biblical author uh, do a particular move, like um, say that a law no longer applies as with circumcision, they're allowed to say that because they were inspired, but we're not allowed to, to imitate that same thing. Um, But I would argue that, uh, for example, when Jesus and Paul are teaching, they're teaching audiences how to do hermeneutics. So, for example, uh, let's take the situation where Jesus' disciples are reaping uh, or uh, plucking grain on the Sabbath and the Pharisees say, why are your disciples doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus says, have you not read? So he's engaging with them on the level of reading. Have you, have, have you not read uh, about what David did when he ate the forbidden bread that was only, excuse me, the holy bread that was only allowed for a priest and forbidden for any, anybody else. Um, so have you not read? He's engaging with them on the level of reading, on the level of exegesis. The Pharisees were not inspired authors, but he's teaching them how to do hermeneutics. He's teaching them how to do exegesis. And in that particular situation with a mandate, um, he says, yes, David violated a law. David should not have technically eaten that bread. 
Um, but he uses that as an example to say, we need to use a deliberative process with law. And in this case, David ate the bread because he was hungry and there was a human need involved. And so Jesus is teaching how to do hermeneutics. He's teaching how to apply law and that applying law requires attending to human need. And he goes on to say, God's law is made for humankind. It's for the benefit of humankind. And law is not, humankind is not made for the arbitrary appeasement of God's sensibility just for the sake of following law. Yeah, it's a nice way of putting it. I've sometimes called that, um, you know, the, the sort of prescriptivist approach to the Bible, the sort of do as I say, not as I do approach, right? Because the scripture authors, um, Jesus himself, they're telling us supposedly what to do. We can't look at what they're doing with the Bible or what they're doing in relation to their context as a model that we can then follow in our own context. Um, but I do, you know, I've come to uh, see the, you know, the, the scriptural authors as, you know, providing a, a sort of a, a hermeneutical role model. And uh, that's, that's, something, that's a case I think we need, we need to make and make often and make uh, as broadly as we can, because I think it's, it's the different approach to scripture that really underpins uh, a lot of the other things that become issues. And um, the issues will keep coming up or new issues of the same sort will keep presenting themselves if we don't address, you know, well, What's the what's the hermeneutic? What's the approach to the Bible that's that's driving these things and causing, you know, slavery, women in ministry, uh, same-sex relationships, you know, Gentiles going back further, something else that's going coming in the, down the pipeline that we might not even have on our radar yet. Uh, underpinning it all seems to be the same approach to the Bible that's so problematic. Yeah, yeah, <clears throat> yeah. yeah. I agree. Yeah. So you mentioned human need and human well-being as, as a, a sort of a, a central guiding point. I think that one of the things that's sort of characteristic of Jesus' ethical teaching is precisely the, uh, the, the hierarchical prioritization of, of virtues, of goods, of, of ends, uh, so that you know, if you have a law that says this, but you have this human need, then of course, you know, you feed the hungry person or you heal the person who is uh, crippled or whatever. Um, and I, I found as I was thinking about your book and thinking about um, uh, the issue of, you know, things like, you know, prohibition of same-sex relationships, you know, imposition of celibacy, you know, on uh, gay and lesbian people and things of that sort, that I can't think of another command or another issue, you know, that, you know, or something that's typical of you know, the prescriptivist approach in um, conservative churches, where something is declared sinful, and in doing so, you're causing deep psychological harm through the prohibition, right? I mean, telling people don't murder, or telling people don't steal doesn't cause individuals in some category or other, and I'm, I'm assuming that includes murderers and thieves, <laughs> right? Doesn't cause psychological harm. In fact, we'd say that as you move beyond those things as you discover how not to, you know, become angry and not to kill and how not to uh, desire things you don't have, how to learn contentment. It's actually in the interest of your spiritual well-being. It's in the interest of your ethical well-being to, uh, to follow and apply those commands. Whereas telling people you are not allowed to have a, 
a deep, significant relationship of this sort with someone else, of the sort that your your, your biology, but also your emotional and psychological uh, character as a human being uh, leads you to desire, that causes people, I mean, it causes people to feel suicidal. It causes people to experience such deep distress. And I can't think of any other prohibition of this of that sort that has that effect. And so I wonder, given the uh, prioritization of human well-being that's there in Jesus' teaching, can't we use that as a guiding principle and say, if, if the prohibition is actually harming someone, there must be something wrong there, right? There must be something wrong with prohibiting that in that way, interpreting that text and applying that text in that way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that Paul is really helpful for defining um, some of these issues with how we understand law and how we apply it in Romans 13, where he says, Oh, no one anything except to love one another, for the one who loved another has fulfilled the law. And then he says, Love, he defines love here. He defines love as love does no wrong. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, and therefore love is fulfilling a law. Uh, and that becomes important when we talk about the issue of suffering and how we understand suffering. Um, so from a traditional standpoint, often there's this sense of, well, the Christian life involves suffering. It, we're crucified with Christ, um, and we have to pick up our cross. And so uh, we should be willing to suffer but there's a failure to distinguish between redemptive suffering versus destructive suffering. So redemptive suffering is, for example, when scripture refers to Jesus, uh, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, for the joy that was set before him. And with Christian martyrs, you will see this uh, a sense of conviction and courage and, and um, the sense that I'm, I'm dying for a good cause. I'm dying for a purpose. And like you said, that's not at all what we see with LGBTQ people who commit suicide or have suicidal ideation. There is no sense of conviction or hope or purpose. Um, it's um, the loss of, of hope. It's a sense of despair. And so there's uh, what that is what I would call destructive suffering. And so we have to distinguish between redemptive suffering and destructive suffering. So when we're looking at human need and how to apply a mandate and we're trying to weigh issues of suffering, we have to distinguish between redemptive suffering and destructive suffering. And I would see what is being imposed on LGBTQ people as a form of destructive suffering. Mm. You mentioned in the book that um, this approach to scripture, you know, that scripture can have a fresh application that departs from the way it was applied previously, was not something you were taught in Sunday school. Um, some people will know exactly what that's like. Some people will be like, that's why you shouldn't go to Sunday school. And some people will be like, 
that's how we, we, we tackled this in my Sunday school. Why weren't they doing it in yours, right? So obviously different people have different experiences. Um, I don't remember these things in Sunday school, but I know um, I've sometimes wondered, you know, as somebody who's involved in a, a church, you know, thinking about, you know, um, Sunday school for all ages. I teach adult Sunday school, but thinking about, you know, the, the fact that sometimes people have been exposed to all kinds of things before they get to that sort of class. At what stage do you think we can get people wrestling with the complexity of scripture and how might we introduce some of these underlying things, right? Because obviously there are things in the Bible um, and things that relate to the application of the Bible that have to do with, um, you know, violence, with sex, with those kinds of areas that we we keep out of sort of children's uh, programming and keep out of Sunday school for a certain period of time. And that often means censoring the Bible and not talking about some of the things that are in the Bible. Um, how do we, though, introduce some of the these underlying principles about how you approach scripture earlier than we do and in other contexts than we do so that maybe we can provide some resources that would help people not sort of set themselves up to have the same difficulties later in life as they confront these issues uh, because they've been steeped in a, a sort of simplistic approach to scripture. Yeah, I think we should be starting young. I think we should be starting in elementary school teaching children about the nature and function of the Bible and the way to interpret it. I don't think we do anyone any service to treat, to teach young people um, a certain way of reading. And then when they become older and they discover that it doesn't quite work, it doesn't quite fit, um, we're not doing anybody any service by doing that. So the way that I would start is by just looking at literary devices. You know, by elementary school, kids are already learning poetry, you know, what is a haiku or, um, you know, learning about stories. And so I would start with, oh, look at the Bible has all these different genres. We have poetry, we have genealogy, we have these legal texts, and we have story and historical record and letters, and just helping uh, young people to realize, oh, okay, there's different genres, which means I'm not going to read poetry in the same way that I read the historical record. I'm going to be paying attention to metaphors and similes. That would be a huge step in um, helping people grow up with a sense of, of how to interpret scripture. But also I would start young with just teaching, where did we get the Bible? Um, you know, one of the things I do with my undergrads is these exercises where they get to play the archaeologist. You know, pretend you're an archaeologist and here you have the ancient manuscripts and here's the Greek one and here's the Hebrew one and how are they different and how are they similar. Mm-hmm. Um, and I could see, you know, kids would love to do something like that. What's the mystery behind how the Bible came together and, and comparing these old manuscripts and you can use you know simple small examples to start when they're young just to give them a sense of oh there are different manuscripts and look at all the different fingerprints of all the different people that helped put this bible together and the Mm -hmm. fact that there's so many different fingerprints is not a threat or disturbing but it's a really cool amazing thing that all these different fingerprints have 
played a role in bringing this together. And it, uh, you know, I think we're missing out on um, so much beauty of scripture when we don't talk about um, in church and in Sunday school, things like all the different literary devices or all the amazing ways that scripture has come together. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. Uh, people find these things distressing, you know, if they suddenly encounter you know an academic book or something. Nowadays, just you know, don't have to spend too much time online, and um, unless you have a very insular circle, you know, some information that's inconvenient to a, a simplistic view of the Bible will uh, probably uh, cross your path at some point. We make these things uh, difficult. We make them um, faith breaking if we wrongly teach people when they're young that things are simple and there's none of this complexity and if these you know if there were this complexity or if the bible were like this rather than like that then you know the the rationale for your faith would be gone and things like that uh, i remember being really struck when i was a student in the uk uh, and being asked to uh, give a talk about uh, the, a topic related to my doctoral research for uh, what they called a sixth form study day, which was uh, students who were preparing for A-levels. So basically like students in the United States preparing for uh, AP exams, right? High school level students. And so I asked, well, what are the kinds of things that they cover in this, you know, in this program? And it had the synoptic problem and it had all these kinds of things on there that you cover in a basic academic course, you know, oftentimes an introductory course about the Bible or about the New Testament or about the Hebrew Bible or whatever, but which you can spend a lifetime in a church and never encounter, never hear about. And so it's really the fact that we don't introduce Christians, uh, we don't introduce people of faith, you know, in any tradition for which scripture is important, to uh, these aspects of the text that actually sets them up to have problems when they encounter mm -hmm. these things later on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And my passion is really for teaching uh, people that are outside the institution who yeah. don't have access. Um, and um, uh, you referred to me as Dr. Keene at the beginning of this, but just as a clarification, I actually left my PhD program in my fifth year during the dissertation stage in part because I, my passion is for teaching uh, outside the academy that I didn't feel like um, within the academy I had the same freedom to uh, bring scholarship and make it accessible to a general audience. And so I'm actually in the process of developing some online courses that are going to be designed for people that have never had a chance to go to seminary, who are never going to go to Bible college, who may have not had a chance to take any kind of a Bible college at a school, uh, but that they're not getting at church. And yet it's so essential for being able to interpret scripture in a way that is edifying and life-giving uh, for faith and practice. Yeah, well, um, I don't know. I don't know if I should apologize for getting that detail wrong. Um, <laughs> I've seen so many. I've seen so many instances of um, women with PhDs uh, who who have them um, not being uh, referred to, even by their last name. Never mind uh, as doctor. You know, and so I try and make a point of doing so, even if um, I'd, I'd rather 
err on the side of awarding one sort of in an honorary fashion on my podcast than uh, depriving yeah. someone of that uh, yeah, no recognition. Uh, but yeah, I do understand, and it's um, it's certainly um, an important an important work to figure out how to reach a wider audience with information, right? And one of the things that I really appreciated in your book, I realize we're getting close to the end of our time. And so I want to make sure I mention this because it was one of the things I thought was really valuable in there, which I, I'm sure will make uh, uh, the online programming and other things that you do um, and that other book that you're hoping to write um, a very valuable one. But I felt you really did a good job of making more than one case for the conclusion that you're arguing or even giving a number of possible options, a number of possible conclusions that one could draw within mm. the framework of different assumptions, right? Mm. So that a reader didn't have to share all of your assumptions or be persuaded by all of your arguments in order to still take something useful away that might nonetheless lead them to do less harm to, uh, to, to other people. Um, mm. And so I guess really if I have a question in that, I mean, I did just want to highlight that thing that I found valuable, but how does one learn to do that? I think is also a useful question to ask because not everyone manages to say, okay, well, if you can't follow me in this, within your framework, you could still see things this way, or you could still draw this conclusion, or you could still apply the Bible this way, even within your framework, which isn't my framework. Mm-hmm. How, do you, how does one learn to do that? Because it's a great thing and we need more of it. Yeah, it comes from listening well. It comes from listening well to uh, the, my conversational partner. So in this particular book, my conversational partner is especially people who are traditionalists and who highly value scripture for faith and practice. And so I'm listening really carefully. So what are traditionalist concerns regarding same-sex relationships? And so often in progressive books that talk about sexuality, there's not uh, a lot of good listening. And so the arguments that progressives are making are not addressing traditionalist concerns. and or are caricaturing them or or sometimes you know oh those traditionalists they're just backward or whatever which is not true at all i mean uh, you know traditionalists i think are very thoughtful for the most part and um are wanting to do the right thing and to honor god and i i want to honor god too and i respect that in them and i have a high value of scripture so i'm listening carefully and when i listen i see that there are certain issues like complementarity uh, between the sexes, you know, that how do we address that? Or how, what about prescriptions in the Bible? How do we handle mandates in what we consider sacred text and God's word? Or um, what about the fall and the fact that the idea in theology and Christian theology is that we have disordered desires and so I'm listening to those concerns and I'm seeking to respond to what I'm hearing. And so the answers that I give come out of listening. Thank you. That's, uh, thank you so much for uh, saying that and for putting it that way. Um, I think that's really if I, I hope people will go and read your book and will um, engage with all the arguments there. But I think that um, as a, a sort of a takeaway message from the podcast and from our conversation today, uh, listening to others, 
recognizing that people who disagree with you, I mean, are not stupid, foolish, mean, mm-hmm. uh, that listening to them and actually trying to understand what their concerns are and then make a case to them is really the only way we're ever going to persuade people if we're convinced that they're wrong. But uh, as people, uh, probably both of us who have changed in our thinking about the Bible and uh, things of that sort over the years, uh, we know for ourselves that we were wrong. I think that's a helpful experience that, again, not everybody Mm-hmm. has the benefit of right there are, there are challenges yeah. that come along with that experience but yeah, there yeah. is a benefit in the sense that we can uh, try to view those people that we disagree with as viewing things the way we did and oftentimes we were not uh, you know malicious yeah. evildoers because we held a, a different view that we now no longer hold mm-hmm. so. yeah absolutely Yeah. Well, thank you so much uh, for being on the podcast today. And let me say to uh, the people who are listening one more time, the title of Karen Keene's new book is uh, Scripture, Ethics, and the Possibility of Same-Sex Relationships. I think it's going to be uh, an important book, not just for uh, people thinking about uh, Christian ethics in an academic context uh, or thinking about scriptural interpretation, but this is a book that uh, adult Sunday school classes and church discussion groups ought to read and engage with. Um, it really does provide the range of um, sort of scriptural texts, uh, interpretative uh, questions, and uh, interacts with a range of perspectives so that it serves as a really good, I think, or I think will serve as a really good a starting point for discussions in all those sorts of contexts. And it's not that long either. And so it's manageable for that sort of setting as well. So thank you again, Karen, for writing this book. Thank you for being on the podcast today. And uh, to those who are out there, thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you so much, James, for having me. Thanks. Bye for now. <laughs>